I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. As ever, your host, Matt Dixon. And this week, we welcome back for the second week in a row, performance nutritionist Scott Tyndall. I guess the accent couldn't have been too bad last week, could it? Now, if you haven't listened to last week's show, it's a great time right now to pause, go back, have a listen there. It really creates all of the foundation of Scott's background, his education and experience, and of course lays the foundation for today, which we're treating as part two. And Scott Tyndall of Tin Lane is a wealth of expertise and knowledge. And on top of that, he's got a massive passion for education. So it's no wonder that he and Purple Patch are a great fit. Scott's got tremendous experience in professional sports, including world-class rowing, rugby, Aussie rules, MMA, endurance sports, of course, including triathlon and many, many more. Scotty is, well, he's the man. And last week we dug in some principles, but today we're going deep. Three main subjects. The first, the importance of breakfast in your life. The second, the role of protein for endurance athletes. And then lastly, we're going to dig into the fuss about a topic du jour, nitrates. Yes, I know that a friend of yours or you has been spouting off recently about the benefit of beets. We're going to go all modular with an in-depth discussion. And, pardon the pun, it's a little bit meaty today. And so with this, we're going to skip Barry today. We're going to give him the week off and we're going to dive straight in. But just before we do, I do need to tell you about a couple of important things that are upcoming in Purple Patch Land. The first is the bike clinic. Two hours of joy, September the 16th. So it's right around the corner, 7 a.m. Pacific. Posture, pedaling, education, and even a little pet shop, boys. Fully immersive, bi-directional coaching. You on the trainer at home, little bit of video. Me on the other side, going through a whole bunch of education and Q&A at the end, and of course, a whole lot of fun. Now, we want to make this really intimate. This is restricted access. We've only got enough spots to make sure that I can truly give you personal coaching and so well truth is we've got five spots left and so who are going to be the lucky five september the 16th book it in 7 a.m you can sign up via the link in our show notes or if you need a little help you're not sure how to get a hold of those show notes info at purplepatchfitness.com and of course we'll help you and speaking of experts ivan o'gorman iog fitting yes the bike fit legend and i'm going to be chatting to ivan on this very show about everything bike i'm going to record it this week probably release it next week perhaps the week following but beyond being a character ivan is simply a wealth of information but the key component for me is he's the master of application applying knowledge to real world solutions for the individual and while he and his team are based in boulder colorado and he's renowned for his expertise there. Now, yes, now you can join the IOG team at a new home base. 
because they've opened up a second center for IOG and it is integrated into the Purple Patch Center in San Francisco. A brand spanking new environment, COVID safe, 10,000 square feet of dedicated fit and posture. It is special. It's rather refined. The IOG are heading this way. They are going to be launching their services officially on Thursday, October the 1st in the city. And for the first round, they're just coming in for the weekend. It's all set up and they come in and a handful of clients are going to get a lucky chance to dig in to their bike fit. October 1st, 2nd, 3rd and 4th. A perfect time for you to do some housekeeping. Get your fit truly dialed in because 2021 is going to be the year of performance and we are all going to be eager, eager to get cracking into it. But it is now the perfect time to suit. So if you're interested in a little bit of IOG magic, all you need to do is head to ivanogorman.com. ivanogorman.com. That again is in the uh, show notes. And you can check out, go down on the website to the SF Center. And of course, when you register, let them know you're with Purple Patch. Okay, now the meat and the potatoes. It's time to dig into nutrition. It's time to welcome Scott. We're going to dive in. A terrific chat. I present to you the one and only Scott Tyndall. It is the meat and potatoes. And yes, it's the meat and potatoes and part two this week, guys. We welcome back to the show. Scotty Tyndall. Scott, welcome back. G'day, Matty. Thanks for having me. We're, um, as I mentioned in the introduction to the show, uh, for the listeners, if they hadn't listened to our first Natter, uh, which really gave so much foundational information for you, and, uh, and also we did some real deep dive in nutrition, encourage them to, to go back, pause, listen to that, and then come back. Today it's part two of our discussion and uh i want to thank you up front for spending so much time in 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 your preparation for this but we're going to go modular today we're going to talking three sections tackling three subjects that we felt were important that we filtered down from about 35 which shows that you probably have a future of coming back on the show several times and the purple patch athletes that are in the inner circle and are uh, obviously, actual, actual full athletes are going to be uh, peppering you with questions. But our subjects today, we're going to tackle breakfast, we're going to talk about protein, and we're going to talk about beets, yes, nitrates. And so with that, you're going to be on the hot seat today. You, uh, you ready for this, Scotty? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to this one. Uh, as, as we were talking about off, off air, uh, I mean, even the first question, talking about breakfast could probably go for a full hour. So we'll keep it short and sweet and try and get as much uh, meat on the bone, I guess, and uh, give as much information to the listeners as we can in a short period of time. Super. Well, we're going to try and keep it to about 10 or 15 minutes per topic. And module one, we're going to talk about breakfast. And I'm going to start with a very simple question which is, is breakfast the most important meal of the day? Great question. Um, I think, you know, whenever we're talking about this question, which obviously creates a lot of hysteria amongst uh, a lot of people, um, I think it's really important that if I was to throw it back to you and say, Matty, I need you to 
ensure that we're on the same page here. So let's define breakfast, let's define important, and let's define what population we're talking about. And that's, that's probably the three things that we need to do in order to ensure that we're on the same page here and everyone understands what and who we're talking about. I, I get the context and uh, I'm, I'm, thank you for just throwing the question right back in my face. <laughs> it's super. So, so let me do my best, okay? Um, so define breakfast. So I'm, I'm going to say that breakfast is typically, and, and we will keep it, I guess, for, for everyone, we'll keep this discussion within middle of the bell curve, knowing there are, there's outliers, but it's pretty much the first big feed of the day. We might have a very small snack, but typically the, the first big feed of the day. That's, that's how I would define breakfast. When I say, um, is it the most important, I'm thinking about the context of performance. So the things that uh, I would be thinking about with performance is to maximize adaptations from the training and also in life have really good sustainable energy throughout the day so that you can have great focus in the workplace, be really present for your employees or your family or friends, etc. And and your third part of that, as I as I think through this, I, I, who are we talking about here? I think we should keep it under the, the sort of majority of the, the purple patch athletes, which would be someone that's time starved, that is training, uh, obviously sort of identifies more as a as an endurance enthusiast or athlete. So they are training on a regular basis they're time starved typically you know busy with work but integrating the sport into their life and as i say looking to yes improve in their sport but also really thrive in the other aspects of their health so in their life health and uh, work performance life performance etc how did i do on that <laughs> yeah i think that that's perfect and it, it just a, at least it establishes who you know, what we're going to be talking about in context. And I think that's such an important thing because, you know, it's such a divisive subject. And I think if you can break it down into those sort of particulars, then, you know, we can have a, a rational discussion and hopefully everyone can agree on what we discuss. And, and I guess you asked me that. What, what you're saying there in many ways is that we, we could have a discussion around the role of breakfast for somebody that is obese and inactive and it might be a different set of parameters relative to a serious full-time professional athlete working out three times in a day for example and it might be slightly different again so so i guess what you're asking me to do there is define what we're looking to accomplish and and and, and the population so so that you can provide smart and thoughtful sort of information without yeah. it being diluted yeah yeah 100 percent. i mean you, you mentioned you know let's just briefly touch on like an obese population it's such a different conversation when you're talking about breakfast versus someone who is training uh, as you said defining even the difference between ex exercise activity to training which is you know uh, periodized and controlled and structured versus maybe just someone doing general activity and exercise. And then you have the sedentary population where, you know, everything comes back to energy balance, doesn't it? And, and for all those populations, it all comes back to energy balance. And when I refer to energy balance, I'm talking about energy in versus energy out and focusing on both sides of that equation and then what affects that. And, you know, again, it, it's such a big conversation to have. And I think, you know, for the point of 
today's question, let's focus on, you know, your the purple patch or the triathlete that is worried or, or thinking, should I eat breakfast? And I think that's a really good place to start. There you go. Should they? <laughs> uh, okay, so should they eat breakfast? And I think first thing, let, let's actually what we didn't define is what is breakfast. You, you mentioned the first feed and I love talking about feeds and I know I've been pulled up on this before and it's something uh, Laurent Bannock actually, who was uh, one of sort of the guys who got me into nutrition back in London, he would talk about feeds and I really like the notion of feeds because I guess I grew up in the country and I guess you feed cattle and things like that. But it makes it very easy to talk to someone about feed one, feed two, feed three, as opposed to breakfast, lunch, dinner, because, you know, they're just focusing on what they're eating. And and I, I quite like that notion. And then what are you eating for if we're talking about breakfast or feed one? What are you actually eating? It's, does it have to be a high carbohydrate um, type meal if it is the first meal of the day or could you go a higher protein, maybe lower carbohydrate, moderate amount of fat. And, you know, again, if we think of breakfast, the the images that come into my mind as soon as I, I hear the word breakfast is probably breakfast cereals and, Col- and Kellogg's because that's effectively what's been you know, pushed on everyone, I guess, for the last 50, 60 years is, you know, the notion of having a breakfast cereal. And, and is that what we should be eating at breakfast? And does that serve the purpose for what you're trying to achieve? Yeah, I mean, it, it, when, when you say breakfast, from my childhood, it pops up immediately uh, big bowls of cereal, uh, particularly Weetabix, by the way. But uh, um, And for the American, American listeners, like Weetabix are excellent. Um, it's certainly something that I've been trying to push on uh, on uh, clients, and I believe you can buy them on Amazon. Yep, in America. Uh, yep, yep. Can you get them in? Uh, can you get them at Whole Foods? You can get them at Whole Foods and, uh, and other sort of you know more higher end grocery stores. Um, you, you'll definitely see them up there, and uh, uh, yeah, they're, they're very good. But but certainly the sort of general breakfast cereal, of course, and particularly the sugar laden one, uh, yeah. pretty different than what my breakfast now, where I think about. You know, eggs and avocado and tortilla or toast or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and that's important as well for, you know, the, the athlete to think about what they are consuming is probably going to have an effect on, uh, you know, immediately, but then also secondly, later in the day, what effect is it going to have on their energy levels, potentially on, on energy consumption, which is overall going to have an effect on that energy balance. You were saying earlier when we were off air, you were talking about the impact of what you have at breakfast relative to uh, insulin sensitivity. Can you go into that a little bit around breakfast? Yeah. So if you're you're talking about glucose control and and we're talking about exercising versus non-exercising, glucose control and breakfast, over the longer term, um, the research isn't necessarily there at the moment. Um, Shorter term, if you're eating breakfast, so if you have a high-carb, high-protein meal, then you will have better glucose control during the day. Um, if you have a high-fat, low-carb meal, then your glucose control won't be as good later in the day if you are consuming another carbohydrate meal. And does that, does that make sense? It does. So, so let, let, me, well, let me see. Let me reiterate it back to you. So high-carb or high-protein 
it, later in the day, uh, you're going to have better glucose control. If you go just high fat and low carb, your glucose control is poorer in the later in the day. If you if you do consume carbohydrate later in that day, yeah. Yeah, and that's that second feeder effect that's been. Uh, some people talk about this second feed effect, and that uh, effectively, yeah, it's it's looking at a second carbohydrate meal or a carbohydrate meal later in the day, and the effect of a meal prior to that, and how you control your your blood sugars as a result of that, and that that is also then you have the caveat to that, which then looks at exercise versus non-exercise glucose control. And as I, as I mentioned, the, the long-term research on this doesn't exist at this point in time or it's still building. Um, if you have breakfast prior to exercise, then your glucose control could be affected depending on how long before you have that, uh, that meal. So if you eat a meal sort of 45 minutes before doing a hard lot of exercise, it could mean that you you peak blood glucose uh, at, at around 45 minutes and then have a drop-off. And that may have a negative effect on how you perform that exercise versus doing some faster training, which could improve, improve glucose control in the short term related to that exercise. So, and again, this looks at an individual level. Some people, and I'm sure you've seen it, Maddie, you've asked someone or you've said to someone, you know, I think you should eat breakfast or eat something before you train. And then they literally just have no energy during the session. And for some reason, some people just tend to like literally be very sensitive to that meal and it causes a, a rapid drop in blood glucose. You know, you're the first person to, uh, to ever talk to me about this. And um, this is fascinating because, uh, you know, I've, I've been an athlete for years and years through swimming and then of course through triathlon after that and the one thing that I could never do at all is eat a meal or, or anything anywhere close to prior to exercise and so yeah. in fact the only time I could eat a meal is two or more hours before and it would have to be very light or within about five or ten minutes almost starting the fueling and anything every single time 100% of the time I would have a, a terrible crash and still do to this to this stage I, and I, I always was puzzled over what it would be and I guess that's it's just a highly individual thing versus I know many other athletes that are um, well equipped and, and almost don't like to train at all if they don't have some sort of form of smack, uh, snack, I should say, when they first wake up in the morning. Yeah, and I, I love – it's amazing, isn't it? Um, I won't ask how old you are, but, you know, to have that discussion now after how many years you've been an athlete and also a coach, and it's like, uh -huh. oh, that's pretty interesting. And so if, if we go back to uh, breakfast and eating before exercise, it's such an important part for an athlete to begin to understand themselves because what as coaches we can do is say, right, this is best practice based on the research, based on this population of people. But ultimately that athlete is still an individual and you have to then practice that and see what your response is and then assess it, see how you responded, how you performed in the exercise and then feedback and then adjust accordingly. And, you know, there is no right or wrong with is breakfast the best meal of the day. You've got to look at that individual response as well. And that, that's really, really important to, to get across.
I would I would say that if we if I had to sort of throw a cloak over the habits of the vast majority of athletes that I know, most people would have their what they would see as their major feed following their morning workout. And so they they get up and there's sort of two camps, get up and get to it. And so get get exercising. That's the camp that I fall in. And then afterwards, post-workout fueling, and that's the breakfast. The other camp, get up, have a very small snack, but nothing too heavy. And then afterwards, post-workout fueling, which is their breakfast. So if we ignore the, the pre-workout a little bit, you're either going to have a small snack or you're not going to have a small snack, relatively individual. What about that post-workout fueling? I guess, what, what's the role of that and um, the big meal following for the majority of athletes? And what should it be comprised of? What are the components of it? Uh, yeah, again, like, are we talking about refueling because you've got a second session coming up or are we talking about refueling to prevent potential breakdown of uh, muscle? Um, or are we talking about that meal in relation to maybe uh, fat, uh, like fat burning, if we want to call it that, or fat oxidation? I think we're talking in terms of um, looking to get adaptations from the training, looking for the best energy that I can have in the workday so I'm not falling asleep at the desk. Yeah. So... I think first and foremost, and it's probably something we'll get into in terms of the next module is is talking about protein. Uh, so for me, that if we're talking about you don't have a second session in the day and you don't need to perform at your absolute best for that session, then that post-workout meal in the morning certainly needs to contain a, a decent amount of protein. Um, you would be aiming for something like at least 0.4 grams per kilo body weight uh, in that meal. If you, and then depending on, you know, what your total energy intake needs to be for the rest of the day, then a, a, an amount of fat and an amount of carbohydrates. And that, that amount of carbohydrates doesn't necessarily need to be a huge amount. You could probably put it at about, you know, 0.3 to 0.5 grams per kilo body weight. Um, so if we're, we're talking roughly for an, for an 80 kilo athlete, you're talking maybe 40 grams of protein you know, somewhere between 30 and 50 grams of carbohydrates and, again, maybe 20 grams of fat in that meal. And what would that meal look like? It might look like two or three eggs. It might look like uh, some small oily fish or some, maybe some grilled chicken. Um, maybe even if you're feeling fancy, maybe a little bit of steak. Um, you know, good serving of fresh uh, vegetables with that or salad. Uh, and then if you want to include a little bit of extra fat, maybe a quarter of an avocado. And, and on top of that, maybe depending if you want a little bit more carbohydrate, something like some whole wheat toast. And that, is that a breakfast that people would consider you know, eating? I would probably say when I, whenever I initially talk about that with an athlete, they're like, you want me to eat that for breakfast? And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a very different thought process, I guess, if you're not talking about fueling for a second session, which is going to look at, you know, completely different meal. You, you mentioned oatmeal before, maybe Weetabix, something like that, where you're trying to really push those carbohydrates into you and you're probably going, you know, at least a gram, maybe 1.2 grams of uh, per kilo body weight of carbohydrates. So again, you're pushing the carbohydrates in in order to replenish glycogen in the muscle, in the, 
uh, certainly in the liver and the blood, um, you know, the muscle will take a little bit longer, but you're probably going to combine that with some protein because we know that improved rates of uh, glycogen resynthesis is going to be improved with a combination of protein and carbohydrates. So if you've got that second session in the day and you need to perform, maybe you're on a training camp or you're really pushing the training, then, you know, that combination of carbohydrates and protein is going to be, you know, paramount to, to that second session and how you're going to feel and perform. So, so certainly people that are, do, are doing what we call two-a-days, in other words, uh, coming back in the afternoon for something, the carbohydrate goes up is what you're saying there, and that's where you start to bring in things like the, uh, the oatmeal or, or components like that. Yeah, 100%. And it's, yeah, I, I tend to work in a very simple simple way of talking about it where red is 30 grams of carbs orange is 50 and green is 100 so you're probably looking at an orange light for something like that you know you don't need to go too overboard because even if you've got that second session the majority of time what i'm finding with a lot of athletes is they still at the back of their mind have some sort of body composition goal they're they're doing all this training um they want to train really really well and i'm sure you want to see the numbers going up but probably somewhere along the line they still want to drop a little bit of body fat um, and get their power to weight ratio better and so you then have that conundrum to throw on top where ultimately you have to be in an energy deficit um, in order to create that loss of of body fat so there's that other mix uh, throwing another sort of little spanner into the mix and and we've got a the I'm going to ask something now, which is a topic in itself. So I, I want to keep it succinct, but I think it's important because there is a, particularly with a lot of executives that I might work with, there's a tendency to understand that training is important, but they've done a lot of reading or listening to various podcasts around fasting and I'm going to improve my body composition to become a better burner, for, you know, better butter burner. I'm going to improve my machine. And so they end up training and then they try and adopt morning fast not eating till the afternoon because of what they've listened to and uh, or what they've read so, so i'm interested in your thought on on this of same population same exercise in the morning but they try and adopt fasting what's the impact of not refueling not having any calories until early afternoon i'll make it up around their energy in the day, and then ultimately their body composition, positive, negative, uh, indifferent. Yeah. Um, so if you are exercising and you do a fast, if everything is considered the same, i.e. total energy throughout the day, if you were doing a fast or not doing a fast, then there shouldn't be a difference. The reality is is that probably when you do a fast, you're shifting the energy balance due to a form of compensation, i.e. you're probably eating less food throughout that day, so therefore you lose body fat or lose weight. Now, it, it's not magic. And, and this is the funny thing about fasting is that, you know, people will be like, oh, it's amazing. I'm, I'm fasting and I'm losing all this. It's so much better from the body comp. It's like, well, of course, because you're just not eating as much. And that, that's one aspect of fasting that I think everyone needs to appreciate is if you do fast and you reduce your total calorie intake of course you're going to lose body fat given if on the other hand we're then oh go on sorry no 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 go ahead okay, stay on stay on 
So, but if we're then talking about fasted training per se and people talking about, you know, the physiological benefits of it and improving fat oxidation and so on, I think one really important area that people forget is that when you look at all the studies where they've done, uh, where they're trying to improve mitochondrial genesis and improving fat oxidation, the day before in all the studies, they do what's called a glycogen depleted training session. So they will go for somewhere like 90 to two hours of high intensity exercise and then really deplete like muscle glycogen, liver glycogen. And then they won't eat a carbohydrate meal, rich meal. They'll fast overnight. And then the following morning do around 90 to two hours of low intensity exercise. And that's a very different situation to what a lot of people do in real world. So you have to also, you know, just sleeping overnight without necessarily, um, you know, doing that glycogen depleting exercise session the, the day before, you're maybe not in the same situation as a lot of this research population. And I think that's really important to look, to think about as well. So just getting up in the morning and doing maybe a 60 minute session after not eating any breakfast Yes, you are in a fast, an overnight fast, but you're not necessarily in a glycogen depleted state. So the physiological benefits of that may not as may not be as large as what you've read about in these sort of studies. Exactly. Okay, that's uh, very interesting. And then the the other really interesting thing, which has just come out recently, which is where they looked at doing this glycogen depleted sort of training session the day before, and then what they did was split a couple of people up into different groups in the morning and. They had one group do the exercise and then a time trial uh, without any carbohydrates but fed them carbohydrates during the time trial. And then the other group, they did the overnight fast, did the exercise, fed them some carbohydrates during the exercise and then in the time trial. And they had one group that didn't have anything. And the two groups that did the overnight fast but then were fed uh carbohydrates during training or not during training but during the time trial they actually had the same rates of fat oxidation as each other but the group who were fed the carbohydrates performed better in the time trial which i thought was fascinating in that that period of higher fat oxidation can be affected from the day before but not affected by an acute feeding of carbohydrates and that's really cool to know that you don't necessarily have to stay in that fasted state to still get the benefits of that overnight fast if you did the glycogen depleting session the day before, which is, I think, really cool. And there's, there's going to be a lot more research coming out about that. It's, it's the sort of one of the topics du jour at the moment, isn't it? It's, uh, it's very interesting. Do you, do, you see, do you see that component being sort of frontier like uh, do, you, do you think that we're going to understand so much more about this over the next five years that, that maybe we don't at the moment yeah 100 percent. i think you've only got to look at the plethora of research coming out and uh you know exercise physiology and nutrition science and what people are trying to do and better understand and i think even if you if you talk about uh let's talk about fat oxidation and suppression of fat oxidation you know if, if the old thinking was if you ate any carbohydrates, you would suppress, um, you know, fat oxidation and therefore you shouldn't eat any carbohydrate foods prior to exercise because that's going to improve that ability to burn fat. And 
I think the reality is now it, it probably doesn't make that much difference throughout the course of the day and over the periods of weeks. It, everyone was looking at the short-term effects of carbohydrates and what it was doing, but it's probably more what people have to factor in is it's what you do over the rest of the day and the rest of the weeks that has probably the biggest impact. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. It was very, very similar to almost any other aspect of like that concept, any, any other aspect of performance in many ways. It's so, so simple to or easy to dive into the myopic and the short term without actually considering the longer term layering effect, if, if, if a lack of a better phrase. Um, let, let's move to module two. And so module two is something that you've already mentioned but now we're going to rip apart, which is protein. The endurance athlete is or has classically been obsessed with carbohydrates. Carbs, 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 we need to burn them. Protein is critical for an endurance athlete, I presume. So let's dive in. I'm just going to hand it over to you. I'm not going to ask you a question apart from explain the role of protein for endurance athletes? What should we be thinking about here? Yeah, it, it, it's such an interesting topic with endurance athletes and something I've, I've come to find. And, you know, if we go back to Sarah P, you know, it was probably one of the biggest shifts in her, in her diet was upping her protein intake from what was, you know, above like the World Health Organization uh, recommendation of 0.8 grams, but probably more in line with like the American College of Sports Medicine, which is what, 1.2 grams per kilo body weight. And the reality is, is most endurance athletes are scared of consuming protein, I think, because they're worried about getting bulky and putting on a lot of muscle. And, you know, it couldn't be further from the truth in that I think, again, what we need to look at is what amount of protein is required in order to uh, stimulate maximum muscle growth, but then how much protein is required to maybe help with repair and recovery. And again, if we look at an endurance athlete, why are we prescribing protein? And I think you've got to go beyond muscle growth. I think it's a given. Like the stimulus is not there if we're talking about traditional endurance training to create a lot of muscle growth. You know, if you're, if you're swimming, you're biking, you're running, it's not the same as being in the gym and lifting a lot of weights, although I know a lot of endurance athletes are now lifting weights, which is great. Yeah. So I think first and foremost, we've got to get beyond that like muscle growth um, scare factor. And for every endurance athlete out there, all I want them to take from this is that review how much protein you're taking and think about why you should potentially be taking more. So if we think about, what you do, Maddie, with your athletes, what it, it's a lot of stress on the body, isn't it? So what we're talking about with protein is to help repair and recover from the stress of exercise. Every time they run, they are causing some form of damage, especially if they're running downhill. If they're doing some heavy bike sessions, they are causing damage to the muscle. So you need to repair that muscle and that helps with recovery. Um, protein can also be a source of fuel. Um, not a very good one. We'll touch on that in a little bit. It helps with feelings of feeling full, so satiety. And if we're talking about an athlete trying to drop body fat um, or body weight, they're probably going to have to be in an energy deficit 
So therefore, what we want to try and do is keep them feeling full so that they don't binge and ruin that diet plan. Um, you have the thermic effect of food or protein, which has the highest amount. And again, it's, it's not a huge amount, but it's still better than uh, carbohydrates and it's certainly better than fat. Um, and then if you have huge amounts of it, it doesn't tend to add to fat tissue. And there's lots of studies showing with an overfeeding of protein, okay, you, you maybe don't need that much of protein, but certainly taking in more protein than the requirements for muscle gain um, certainly doesn't have any, it doesn't appear to have any negative effects on, say, body composition. You know, I, I, I'm going to say something here that would be delighted if you, uh, if you, um, push back or I'm not right but with every athlete that I have met I think it's true almost every single athlete it is very rare that I meet an endurance athlete coming in who is eating enough protein to support the demands of their level of endurance training I think that's very is that is that fair enough or is that too much of a sweeping uh, uh, point no, I'd, I'd 100% agree with it. I, I am, you know, it's one of the questions I ask in a questionnaire of like, what's your view on protein? And I always, I don't think I'm yet to read a response where their protein intake is what I consider to be on point, um, you know, to what I believe they require. And, you know, look, there's a lot more research required in this area, but we're certainly beginning to understand that, a decent amount of protein and, you know, you, you can break it down into whatever number you want. But, um, you know, that protein, as soon as you give them more protein, they tend to respond and feel much better with training. They tend to recover quicker and that allows them then to focus on, you know, recurrent sessions and the ability to back up. And that's certainly what I'm finding. I, I absolutely agree, and I think it's uh, I think it's a, a great component. I want I want to go into a a question that that I often get, and uh, and I, th- I think you can provide a great answer to, which is type of proteins. Uh, veganism is very very popular at the moment, and um, uh, there's also a, a lot of uh, stories. If we go back three, four, five years around soy and components like that, so. Give me, give me your thoughts on the breakdown of the types of protein that an athlete should ingest. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, something for a lot of uh, listeners to understand is when they look at a lot of these endurance studies with proteins, what they're actually using is amino acids as well. So they don't often use whole food forms of protein. They will use, um, quite often, they will use egg proteins. Um, because of the amino acid ratio. Um, but it is important to understand that because it allows them to study it in a little bit better way. So if we're talking about animal-based versus plant-based proteins, um, I think one thing to consider is that amino acid ratio. And, and that is important because what we see is animal-based proteins do have a better ratio of amino acids. And it's not to say that plant-based proteins Uh, aren't as good it's just that they have differing ratios so if you are going to be consuming a plant-based diet and consuming plant-based sources of protein it's important to consider multiple sources because uh, some of those sources of protein 
uh, from plants will be deficient in certain amino acids. So for instance, if we think of rice, it's deficient in lysine, uh, pulses or beans are often deficient in methionine. Uh, both are important amino acids. Uh, and so if you, if you are going to consume plant-based proteins, then consider just consuming varying sources of them in order to get that amino acid profile. The other thing to consider is that leucine, which is regarded as probably the key amino acid for triggering muscle protein synthesis and helping sort of net protein uh, balance, is that um, plant-based sources often are a little bit lower in leucine. And so it may be a consideration to fortify maybe your some of your foods with either leucine or maybe branched-chain amino acids or even if you go beyond that, what we call essential amino acids, and you can buy that as in powdered form. Um, and what would, uh, I'm not going to call normal foods, but uh, what, what would be examples of foods that are higher in leucine? Uh, well, any form of meat, really. <laughs> so leucine, leucine is very high in meat-based products. Uh, and so you're going to get a lot more of that in, say, red meat, uh, chicken, so on, dairy as well. Um, and that's it's probably, you know, a, a really good reason to eat animal uh, proteins if, you, uh, if you're in that way inclined. You know, I've got, I've got several friends that are, that are vegans and endurance athletes and often ask me the question, you know, can, can you be a successful endurance athlete and be a vegan? Another one that I'm going to say, am I right in saying this? But I often say, you absolutely can. The, the, the thing is, it takes a lot more work. And um, my, my lens with, there, there's a, a real attraction for, for many understandable reasons to go plant-based and I'd never argue against that, but I feel like there should be a real consideration of if you are going to make that choice, that lifestyle choice, you realize that it does come with the the requirement to make food your passion. It's the way I often think about it because it takes a fair amount of planning to really be successful if you're an endurance athlete. Would you agree with that sentiment? Yeah, 100%. Uh, I think being uh, a plant-based athlete, is, is certainly manageable. I think being a vegan is just another step on top of that. And it just requires being very planned. And also, you know, going back to what we were talking about, I think last, last time was like, you need to ensure that you're assessing and reassessing. So this is where something like your blood work, I think comes, becomes very important because you can unfortunately become deficient very quickly if that vegan or vegetarian diet is not well thought out and not planned uh, and you're not getting all the appropriate vitamins and minerals as a result and potentially may need to look at, you know, some forms of supplementation in order to meet those, those targets that you're going to need, not as a sedentary individual, but as a, as a high-performing athlete or individual. And, and there, again, there's a very big distinction between the you know, sedentary or lightly active individual being on a plant-based diet or a vegan diet versus a high-performing triathlete who their energy requirements and, you know, from a macro and a micro requirements are going to be very different. And, and that's all I would say with that is just be very aware of it and plan it out and work with someone to help you do that. Super. Anything else on protein before we, we move on? You could yeah, I think... The the other thing with, you know, with protein and what I really would like 
you know, people to understand is that it can be periodized just as much as carbohydrates. Um, you know, carbohydrates are absolutely key in terms of, um, you know, looking at energy and repair, uh, sorry, and recovery. The protein is very similar as well. And, and there's no reason why you can't be periodizing your protein throughout, uh, throughout the day, throughout the week and, and learning to manage that appropriately to control things like damage and, and improve damage repair to the muscle as, you know, your exercise is either increasing or in terms of duration or intensity. And I think that's really important. And it's not just from a muscle perspective, but as we touched on last time, also potentially from a mitochondrial perspective and providing protein to help the structure of that, which then goes on to help you, you know, with energy production. And I think that that's super important for athletes to understand. And and then you throw in the mix, if you're an older athlete, then it probably becomes even more important and, and maybe upping that protein, um, you know, well beyond that 1.6 could have other factors and I think, uh, or other benefits, I should say. And that, that's another consideration um, for athletes to, to think about. That's super. All right, we're going to move on. We're going to hit number three. I think it's going to be the, the, the last subject of the day. And my mum always told me to eat your greens. And so nitrates. This is, this is a really popular subject at the moment around beets and much else. Uh, so I'd love you to dive in. What's, what's the role, benefit or non-benefit of nitrates with endurance athletes? Yep. So, um, I, I think guess what is it first? Yeah, I was going to say probably. What are they? Let's, let's define. Yeah. Sorry. So, nitrates are, are contain. So, nitric oxide is is probably the important thing to consider. And nitric oxide is a gaseous molecule, and it's a signalling molecule that has like pivotal role in human physiological function. So, initially, what they so and nitric oxide. Uh, can be found in the body through endogenous or ex exogenous. So that means either within the body or through dietary intake. And initially it was thought there is an amino acid called L-arginine and the oxidation of that forms, uh, uh, you would go from a nitrate to a nitrite and nitric oxide. And that, that has an effect on the body. Um, and then what the scientists then worked out is it can also go the other way. And so if you take in dietary nitrates, they can then be formed into diet or broken down into nitrites and then formed into this nitric oxide. And what nitric oxide does, it has a number of effects on the human body from a vascular perspective to a neurotransmission to a mitochondrial to a muscle. And most people, when they think about nitric oxide, what they're probably thinking about is vasodilation or enlargement of blood vessels to improve blood flow. And that's probably the number one effect that a lot of people think about um, in terms of that dilating blood vessels, increasing muscle um, uh, blood delivery. Okay. And what that does is then improve oxygen delivery to muscles and improves muscle efficiency. And you know, for that reason, coming back to your what your mum said and certainly what my mum told me about eating my greens, she didn't explain it in that way. She just said they were good for me. So 
if you want a scientific reason why you should up your, uh, you know, your leafy greens vegetable intake, then, you know, that's certainly one of them. And, and when you think about the leafy greens, give us, give us the broad, I know there's a broad range of these, yeah, um, uh, you know, with, with different lettuces, beets, et cetera. What, what else should listeners be thinking about with this, this baseline of uh, heavy nitrates? Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, you mentioned quite a few of them there. So things like uh, rocket um, or arugula, I think is a, as you yeah. call it. Um, arugula has very high amounts in it. Um, amaranth recently was discovered to have quite a lot. Um, that's a type of ancient grain, I think you would call it. Celery, radishes, spinach, lettuce, and then, of course, beets. And beets are probably the the one food that has probably had more attention than any other in terms of, um, you know, your, your beet juice and then beet extracts to deliver high amounts of these dietary nitrates to create a effect on the body. And what, so what, what, on a day-to-day practical advice, because it's, you know, you'll, you'll often see athletes chugging beet juice before an event, which I'm going to come back to in a, in a second from some practical sort of coaching observations i guess but is supplementation of uh, these uh, nitrates is it is it firstly would you recommend it and then what does that look like if so for for an athlete um yeah i think look always food first and i think you can obtain a decent amount of dietary nitrates and again if we go let's go food first health first so mm-hmm. the benefits of dietary nitrates in in the diet uh, are very well researched. So if you, again, let, let's have a look at the effect of it. So you want around, let's say, just a very basic number, four milligrams per kilo of body weight, okay? So if you're, you know, if you're an 80, 80 kilo male, uh, you know, that's 320 milligrams of dietary nitrates that you want in your system to create some health benefit. Now, put it in perspective, the average Western diet, and when I say the average Western diet, a lot of this research is coming out of America, is around 75 milligrams per day. So there is an argument just to increase the amount of leafy greens in your diet on a day-to-day basis to increase those amounts of dietary nitrates. And the effect of that, like when when they've had individuals eat a much higher proportion of these those forms of, um, you know, beets, rocket, lettuce, that, what they've shown even in about three or four weeks is a significant drop in blood pressure. And if we, you know, and we're talking 10 milligrams um, of mercury drop, which in the scheme of things doesn't sound like much, but that's certainly a significant number in terms of improving health for an individual and potentially reducing, uh, you know, the risk for heart disease or stroke. And that, that in itself is a really cool reason to eat leafy greens. And then if we go into, um, you know, how do we up it to, you know, what is the magic number? Magic number is around 400 milligrams for sport. That's what's been shown to have a performance benefit. Now, in order to get to that 400 milligrams, you're probably going to think about supplementing with some form of beet extract, Uh, certainly a beet extract because, you know, there are certain ones out there that we know deliver that 400 milligrams. So on I would a, on a daily basis, on a daily basis, basically. So I would do that for five days leading up to an event. 
you would be taking in that sort of it continuating all your leafy grains probably at least for three to four days prior to um, a major event and obviously then dropping off that amount because you want to reduce your total fiber intake which is a whole different conversation yeah. but then certainly consuming like that 400 milligrams of beet uh, beet shots or whatever it is you want to do i would certainly consider doing that for five days leading up into that and the other thing is, is that uh, the timing of that supplementation is probably important. Uh, you, it tends to peak at around two hours uh, in terms of the nitrates in the system after, after drinking it. So, you know, if you, if you are going to consume it on the day of an event, you certainly want to consume it a number of hours beforehand. Um, and if you think about the bike, you know, I guess if you're, on, if you're, coming, if you're doing something like a triathlon, then, you know, maybe consuming it, you know, what, how long is a swim going to take for an average in a 70.3? If 70.3, let's call it 30 minutes. It could be less, it could be more, obviously, but let's just call it 30 minutes. Yeah, 30 minutes. So maybe you want to just consider taking that, as long as you've practiced it, maybe only 30 minutes before the, uh, 30 to 40 minutes before the, you know, 30 to 60 minutes probably before that, uh, before that swim so that you get the benefit then on the bike and that could be way, one way of thinking about it the one observation or, or reporting back from athletes when they and, and this may have been a cause of brand new look at this they're going to promote it in the media and uh, this is the next big sort of catalyst to your performance and, and then of course them overdoing it but a lot of reporting around GI distress so you, you talked about practicing it making sure is that what you were sort of talking about with gi distress yeah um, and you, you never want to take any supplement or anything you know just before a race and i i think if uh i'm sure it's been done before when things like these beat shots uh were probably being handed out at events and people were like great i'll just try that you know it's meant to help me they've heard about it they've read about it and so then on the day of a race they suddenly have a shot they've never had before and uh, you know, lo and behold, you end up with an issue. Of course, combining with uh, the GI system's not working at its optimal level when you're competing, both due to yeah. obviously nerves, but also with the blood getting shifted around to dissipate heat and do the work that you're asking the body to do. So, um, yeah, you know, combine it all with the stress. I guess there's a heightened chance of uh, gi distress happening with anything yeah so that's the biggest reason not to introduce anything i guess i would say yeah 100 percent. and i think the other thing to consider is that not all beet extracts are created equal uh, if i can say that so um really really some really interesting studies where they actually assess the nitrate uh concentration within um i think it was about 50 or 60 products and Lo and behold, what was on the bottle was not necessarily was inside. Um, and, you know, there are certain brands where we know that that amount of dietary nitrate is contained within it. And what I would say to listeners is do your due diligence and uh, actually research which ones do. Um, you know, we at, at True Protein, for instance, like we, we've created a, uh, a powdered form which has cherry and beet in it and we sent it off to, you know, we sent it off to the National Measurement in Institute because we actually wanted to ensure that the nitrate concentration within the product that we were producing and selling 
actually contained that 400 milligrams of dietary nitrates. And what was great to see was actually, I mean, it came back with 450 per, per serve, which is, which is amazing to see. But you then are up against a lot of products who potentially are either cheaper or claim these amounts of dietary nitrates in them. And the reality is they don't have anything in them because they're probably a fruit juice concentrate as opposed to a beet extract. And, and so it is important to consider that. And then the other thing that you've got to consider is the taste of that um, supplement as well. Um, something like Beat It. Beat It is probably the world leader in, um, you know, beet juice extracts. Unfortunately, you know, people, quite a few people don't like the taste of it. I, I can remember being at the, the Maple Leafs and, you know, explaining the significance and the importance of dietary nitrates and how good they are at improving um, you know, performance for intermittent sports, for endurance sports. And, you know, the theory is there, the, the evidence is there, but then the practicality of consuming something like that beat it shot, a lot of the players were just like, no chance. They just didn't like it. And that, that's a huge component, isn't it? It has to fit, like anything, it has to integrate into life and it, and it has to be habitual if you're going to use it without it being yeah. a show. So. Yeah, 100%. And uh, again, like, you know, the focus for any, you know, any program is you've got you've to be able to get the athlete to do it. So, you know, if, if they won't consume it, then it's no good to anyone. And so I think taste profile is, is so important for any of these supplements. And again, what I would say to, to people is certainly try them before you uh, decide to go, you know, buy cases of it or whatever it is you're going to do. Uh, make sure you sample differing products, ensure that, you know, the taste is on point, that you can consume that on a regular uh, basis. And then secondly, ensure that what it is saying it has in it actually has it. And there are ways of, you know, confirming that, whether it's the, the individual company should have certifications on their website, confirming that they have that amount of um, dietary nitrates in the product or even looking at research studies which have assessed all these differing products and looking at the concentration and just aligning yourself with one of those products good man scotty we went pretty deep there thank you very very much as ever i appreciate you coming on the show i appreciate you doing two episodes back to back i think we could have done seven but we're gonna hold and come back and and tackle some more subjects but very much enjoyed the modular style as well to uh, to enable us to just uh, keep it pretty contained so uh so appreciate it and um where can uh, where can listeners find you yeah uh maddie awesome loved it uh you know i think it's really great to actually delve into some of these topics uh in a little bit more detail and i, I really like this format and hopefully a lot of listeners get a little bit out of it and can follow up with questions uh, in terms of finding me, they can just go to uh, tinlane.co. Um, there's you know plenty of information there, and they can uh, click on it, send me a, send me a message if they have any further questions. And, uh, and then you're also, of course, housed on the uh, the Purple Patch pages as well, which we should mention uh, on our nutrition services, purplepatchfitness.com, and just head to nutrition services and Scotty's outline there with his profile if you want to find out more about him. So either way. Um, just let him know you're a Purple Patch listener, and Scotty, I'm sure you'll uh, you'll treat him well. Yeah, 100%, Matty. Thanks for that. All right. Thanks so much, Scotty, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Matty. Bye.
Well, there it is, guys. I tell you, I can't thank Scott enough. So much time and dedication. And I'm really excited for the journey ahead, the help and support that he's going to provide so many Purple Patch athletes and hopefully so many fans and listeners of this show and well beyond. You do not have to be a Purple Patch athlete to work with Scott. He is, of course, a resource for everyone. And I think you get through this, he's highly pragmatic, a wealth of information and absolutely loves the real relationship of helping you thrive. And the best thing, I think he gets the big picture better than any nutritionist I've ever met. It's super. And if you're interested in working with Scott, just head to purplepatchfitness.com. Go to Nutrition Services, go and check it out. He's now partnered up. And so you've got two options with the Purple Patch Nutrition Services. You can work with our long-standing, dedicated nutritionist, Kyla Shannon, who's absolutely fantastic as well. Or of course, the guest on this show, Scott Tyndall. So go and check it out. And remember, Bike Clinic, Ivan O'Gorman, lots to come next week. We're going to have some fun. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Take care. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Purple Patch Podcast. If you like what you hear, we'd really appreciate it if you share with your friends and even go the extra mile and head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate and review the show. The Apple Podcast link is in the show notes. Your support and positive reviews go a huge way in increasing our visibility and also the exposure to time-starved people everywhere who want to integrate sport into life and ultimately thrive. Don't forget, you can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Cheers!